So verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on heaven uh, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we come to this passage again today, Lord, that you may open our eyes. Speak to us by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord. Help us to see the glory of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that whether we, wherever we are today, that Christ would meet us there. If we don't know him, that we would meet him. If we've been a Christian a short while, that our faith would mature. And that if we've been a Christian for many, many, many years, we will continue to be humbled and to grow into his likeness ever more day by day. There's nothing greater than meeting Christ. May we meet him again in your word today, we pray. Amen. Amen. I do like these passages. Sometimes pastors will tend towards sermons that can give you five steps to this and three steps to that and what have you. This is one of those passages that I call sunbathing. There's, there's no steps or programs. You just open up the Bible and here is a passage and it just tells us who Jesus Christ is. And we just sit there and we go, ah. And that is more transformative for our lives. That changes us more than someone telling us, here's three steps to change this, and here's five steps to improve that. Because it is seeing who Christ is, seeing what he's done for us, and seeing what he'll do for us, that are the things that just really change us. And so it's with great joy that we get to come back to this passage again. Now, by way of context, we're here in the book of Colossians. He's writing to the church at Colossae. We, we studied the book of Ephesians prior to this, and we're going to see a whole bunch of uh, Ephesians type of terminology and stuff in here as well. But this particular book he's writing to this particular church because there is a false teacher who's coming in and is about to spread heresy to this church. May have already started. And it's interesting to me that Paul, in preparing them to refute this false doctrine, the first step, the first thing that has to be done is to see who Christ is. Because, because seeing Jesus and seeing the sufficiency of Jesus, the supremacy of Jesus, is the remedy for most of our problems. When we see him for who he really is, then the false, uh, the false teaching, the false understanding sticks out that much more. 
Now, Paul, in talking about Christ, he got to verse 13, talks about God delivering us from a domain of darkness, transferring us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. And now that his focus is on the Son in verse 14, he says, in whom, in this Son, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so Jesus Christ is the one who is going to redeem us. Remember redemption, what that means? It means paying a price to our master who was sin, so that we might be free from sin and come under the new master, Jesus Christ. That's redemption. It's a transference of ownership. And that comes about through the forgiveness of our sins. And there where his focus is on Jesus, he then turns to this passage, verses 15 to 20, which many versions, as I said last week, are sort of indented in your Bibles or italicized perhaps to illustrate and to show that this is a song or a hymn or a poem of some sort. And uh, I, I would love us to, to have a nice tune to sing this too because it would have been a glorious hymn for them to have sung. And in the first few verses, just skimming over it quickly as we dealt with it last time, it talks about Jesus. It says he is the image of the invisible God. That you, you can't see God the Father. He is spirit. You can't see him. But Jesus Christ, at a point in history, though he existed in eternity past, at a point in history, the word became flesh. And Jesus, in becoming man... He was always God, but a point in history he became man. And in becoming man, we now have an image of God that we can see. Not that we, we see an image of a person, but that in that person, Jesus Christ, we see completely and fully the character of God. The covenant-keeping love of God is best seen in the person of Jesus Christ. And so we have an image of God to see in Jesus Christ. It talks about him being the firstborn of all creation. We spoke about that at length last time. It doesn't mean that he was created and he was the first thing created. It, the entire passage teaches the exact opposite of that. What it's saying is, is he is preeminent over creation. He is the most important one, and he is over creation, and that is clear why. It tells us why. For, there's your explanation, verse 16, for by him all things were created. Jesus Christ is the creator. God's the creator, but God, the Trinitarian God, does the act of creation through the person, Jesus Christ. When God said, let there be light, and there was light, the Father decided there would be light. The Son gave us light through the power of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus created all things. In heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, thrones and dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And boy, was that a verse. And I tell you, everything... Not just the things on earth, microscopic, not just the things in the sky, not just the things in space, but the things in the spiritual realm as well. Everything was created. Everything, no matter how good and bad. Not just honeybees, but wasps. Not just angels, but demons. Created as angels, but fallen. But everything was created by him, and everything was created for him. We're going to come back to that at the end of this passage. And therefore we have the sovereignty of Christ, the supremacy of Christ, and the sovereignty of Christ over all of creation. And 
Verse 17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And therefore, what that verse is saying is that Jesus didn't just get the ball rolling. He didn't just say, look, here's creation, have fun with it, folks, I'm out of here. But that every moment, second by second, the entire universe at a subatomic level is held together by the man Christ Jesus. That to me is just astonishing. That he holds, he didn't just create it, he didn't just start it, but the only way that this universe continues to function is because of Christ. Now, that's where we left it last time. With this glorious picture of this glorious Lord who is sovereign and supreme over all things, holding everything together so that every knee must bow before him. So that he is the sovereign over all, over your heart, over my heart, over your will, over my will. And here he is ruling and reigning over all things. And then it says, and he is the head of the body, the church. Now that is an astonishing contrast. We're going from everything on earth and in heaven. We're going from all things visible and invisible. We're talking about the furthest stars in the furthest galaxies. We're talking about the most microscopic subatomic particles. We're talking about spiritual things and physical things. We're talking about things that we'll never see or even be aware of. Everything was created by him. And then out of all of that, this one thing is plucked out, the church. Now, it's become very common in Christian circles to say, I love Jesus, but I really don't like the church. You've probably heard that expression. You may have even used it. I'm sure I have over the years. The problem that we have is this. The problem we have is this is the church sucks because it has people in it and people suck. (laughs) And you're one of them. So ultimately you're the problem. But Christ is a solution. But the problem is practically is that if we avoid people that we don't like, if we avoid people who are our kind of people, if we avoid people who irritate or annoy us, if we avoid people who really, quite frankly, aren't as far on in the journey as we are and we don't, we don't feel comfortable having them around, if we avoid everybody that we just don't want, then what we're doing is we're putting ourselves above the thing that Christ himself prioritizes over everything else in creation. You've got the whole of creation Invisible, visible, heaven, earth, and the crown jewel of that creation is his church. That's why he calls it his bride. If you had a guy on his wedding day, and his wife's walking down the aisle, the bride's walking down the aisle, and he's eyeing up all the other ladies in the building, that's not a nice guy. Right? And our Christ is the best of men. And he loves his bride above all others. And guys, we the church are the bride of Christ. 
in the whole of his creation. The whole of his creation. We are his favorite. That, that just blows me away. The family was watching this nature thing the other day and there was a whale shark on it. Have you ever seen a whale shark? We're better than whale sharks. We're, we're, better, than, we're better than the stars in the galaxy. We're, we're better than, than, than all of creation. We're greater than the angels. <laughs> you know, there you are and you have the shepherds. And the glory of God has been away from Israel for centuries because of their sin. And these common shepherds, lowest in society, there they are, just doing their job. And the glory of the Lord appears and shines around them. Angelic heavenly host. And they're going, whoa, do not be afraid. Why not to be afraid? Because they're petrified. <laughs> the glory of God is shining around them. And yet, as believers, they were to become greater than the angels. Isn't that just something? You think if the angelic host of heaven were to appear before us, in God's eyes, the ones below are greater than the ones above. That's the church. I get there are problems with churches. There's a problem with every church. And I get that there's always going to be difficulties in churches. We have a whole bunch of people, every single one of them bringing their own sin nature. And there's always going to be problems. But if Jesus Christ considers his bride to be the greatest thing in creation, don't you think it's worth a bit of effort to love one another, to cherish one another, to forgive one another, to forbear with one another? to be patient with one another, to be humble and prefer one another. That's church. That's us as Christians, Christ in us by his spirit, ministering to one another so the world outside comes in and says, look at how they love one another. And so here's all of creation. And it says, and he is the head of the body. That's it. it, it it's like taking somebody, you know, we've got Oscars coming up in a month, and I, I hope someone will do it, they'll get their award and they'll say, thank you to the Academy, blah, 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 producers, directors, blah, 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 everybody who worked there, blah, 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 childhood friends, blah, blah, blah. And they'll, they'll have all this, these things they've done, all these awards that they've won, but most of all, I want to thank my wife. And, and that's kind of what this passage is like. It's like Christ is, is over all things, but he's the head of the church. What a thing to mention amongst all of that. And so, in doing that, <clears throat> it marks this transition in this passage, going from the, the, the everything of Christ to the specifics of us. <clears throat> and that's where the passage is now going to continue on. But as we go on, one last thing to note, bear in mind that Christ is the head of the church. The head of the church universal and therefore by implication the head of each individual congregation. Christ is our head. 
the role of, of uh, the church in a congregational church, the role of a pastor, the role of deacons, the role of people in the church, we are all subservient to Christ. The goal is that Christ, through his word, would lead our church. That's the goal here. We want to be Christ-like. And it's difficult. You know, I keep trying to say this, I keep trying to emphasize this, and I know we often get nods of the heads, and I think sometimes it's, it's, a, it's a progression till we realize how, quite how offensive what I'm about to say is. But Jesus Christ should be offensive to each one of us. I feel that in churches today, we, we gather around viewpoints that we emphasize that we're comfortable with. But, but Jesus makes people uncomfortable. You know, we, we just last Sunday evening, and I do encourage you guys to come out in the evenings. We're doing Mark's Gospel, and we go a little bit more in depth, and, and, um, and it's fascinating. I, I'm loving going through Mark. And, and last week, we were looking at Mark's Gospel, and... and and how Jesus would, would dine with sinners and tax collectors, and he'd just hang out with these people. And the religious leaders were like, well, we know you're not the Messiah, because the Messiah wouldn't do this kind of stuff. And, and I haven't, and, and I don't, I know that we read the Gospels and we think that we're, we're team Jesus, right? So we say, Jesus said this, yay, go Jesus. And the Pharisees said this, boo, Pharisees, you know. We know what side we're on, right? But it, it protects us from looking at the text honestly and saying, well, how much are we like the Pharisees? How much is it that, that Jesus Christ, if he came in here, would offend us? Because he wouldn't be how we want him to be. He wouldn't agree with us on political issues, or he wouldn't agree with how we treat other people. Or he, you know, we, 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 we're so... It's so easy for us to mold a Jesus into our image. But he is the head of the church, and we, the church, as we mature, we're the ones who change. Now, I know that this, this may be a shock to some of you, but Jesus doesn't change. The goal here is that we do, so we become more like him. And yet, in church after church, Jesus is so often molded into the image of how we already are. Well, we don't do things like that at our church. Jesus wouldn't like it. Ugh. Less I say about that, the better. You get the point. So there he is, head of this glorious bride. He is the one to whom we submit. He is the one that we want to be transformed into the likeness of, and more of that in a moment. Then says he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Now, as we finish off verse 18, the thing to remember here, and this is why I love the context, what's happened here is we've gone from Jesus supreme over the entire universe, holding it all together, creating everything, to the focus on the church. So when we finish this verse, our focus is now on the church, all right? So when it says he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, what it's saying is, <clears throat> firstly, that his resurrection from the dead is very much the foundation of the church. Every, it's the beginning. Everything comes from that. 
And because he is the first to rise from the dead, he is the, he is, yeah, and I, I get, I know about Lazarus, and I understand that. What I'm saying is, here he is, he dies on the cross for our sins. Now, the thing about Lazarus is that Lazarus had two funerals. He had the one when he rose again, and then he had another one, right? He died again. But what's different about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, what makes it the first and the only, is that Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross, he paid the price for sin. Because he lived the sinless life. And so what happens at the cross is that Christ, who's without sin, takes our sin upon himself and is punished for our sin, and his righteousness, his goodness, the righteousness that we could never live, he then gives that to us so that we can be righteous in the sight of God. There's that, that exchange, that switch. And so because of his perfect life, because he has paid the ransom for sin, because he has conquered sin and he has conquered death, his resurrection from the dead, unlike Lazarus, is not a resurrection to then die again. It is a permanent, complete, total, death is finished, sin is finished, I have won, I am victorious, rising from the dead. You get the difference. But here's the cool bit. He's the firstborn of the dead. That means to say that while his resurrection is unique at that point in history, it won't always be unique. Because this is the thing, guys, is that as I look in the mirror year by year and see more wrinkles being added, as I take longer to recover from things, as we get old and we get frail and sickness and, and age starts to overcome us gradually. I know some of you aren't there yet, but you will be. That it's a reminder that sin is in our members, in our body, in our flesh. We don't get to escape it. And eternity for us is not eternity separated from the body. Because when we die and we're separated from our body, that's our next step, but it's not our final step. Because there is a time coming when the firstborn will lead the way for the rest of us. There'll come a day when those of us who have faith in Christ will rise from the dead, following our Lord. Not a Lazarus resurrection, but a Christ resurrection. We will rise from the dead. We will have resurrected, glorified bodies, free from sin, and we will never die again. Man, that's good. We will fellowship with Christ. We will fellowship with God, and sin will never hinder our relationship with him ever again. And every trial, and every woe, and every sorrow, and every regret, it will all be gone. That's where we're going. That's our Christ, firstborn from the dead. That's the beginning. 
You see, that's what beginning means in context. It's not about the beginning of creation. That was the previous section. We're now into the church. He's the beginning. He starts the church. He rises from the dead. There's your basis for the church. And we, his church, his bride, are going to follow him into that same kind of resurrection. That's why what Rosalinda said earlier at the commission was exactly right. For us to live is Christ. But to die, that's gain. Because there is good things coming for those who trust in him. And then it says, so that in everything he may be preeminent. Listen, when we are without sin and when we're glorified, everything, everything will be because of Christ. We will not stand there glorified because we were clever enough to see things that other people couldn't see. Because we thought things differently than other people. Because we took an opportunity that others missed. We will stand there on that day and not say, oh, how clever am I that I believed this or trusted in that. We will stand there and say, a sinner like me stands glorified because of nothing but the blood of Jesus Christ. That's how we'll stand. And he will be preeminent in it all. It's all because of him. Is all for his glory. And every blessing and every success along the way is his as well. 4, verse 19. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Now, I'm not going to spoil this for you because this, this is what they would call in a movie a setup. He's telling us something about Christ here because he's going to use it to blow our minds a little bit later in the book. So we'll leave that for now. But the point that he's communicating here for now is simply that that everything that makes the Father God is in the Son. Makes the Son God too. And it is because of his deity that these things in verse 18 are able to happen. But one little interesting thing to note in this expression is that the fullness of God is pleased to dwell in him. Remember that the whole of creation was through him and for him. It never hurts to remind us, particularly when we're looking at all the good that is going to come to us in the future, never hurts to remind us that it is not for us. It's for him. The goal here is not to please us. It's to please him. And that's going to become very evident in verse 20. But let's leave that for now. Let's go with the flow of the argument. We'll come back to it. And through him, so the fullness of God is pleased to, it was pleased to dwell, and then through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now, we're we're sandwiching the text here together. In the earlier part of this hymn, the earlier part of this passage, he's talking about how everything was created, and it says, in heaven and on earth. And now here at the end, we come back to the in heaven and on earth, because what he's going to do is reconcile things. So it's almost like a little sandwich. We have all creation, then the church, and then all creation again. Do you see that? It's a a church sandwich surrounded by creation. 
But there's a shift as well, because when we come back to creation, we now come back to creation in light of the work that Christ is doing through the church. And what's going to happen through the work of Christ that brings about this church, in building the church even, is that he is reconciling to himself, it's for God, he's reconciling to himself all things by the blood of his cross. Now, this is important because this is a creation passage looking at the majesty of Christ. And everything, and it's really clear from the context, because he talked about everything, visible, invisible, heaven, earth, he's done that. We, we've, we've talked about it. It's covered. It's everything, right? Now he's saying that everything is being reconciled to him by the blood of the cross. Now, that's a message we don't hear very often. What we normally hear is this. We normally hear that we are sinners and that as sinners, we, when we have faith in Christ, that we individually and we corporately as a church are reconciled to God, right? And that is accurate and correct. A few of you were looking worried like I was going to say it wasn't true. That is true and that is correct. We are reconciled through his blood to the Father. Sin is dealt with, death is dealt with, and we will one day be before him without sin, completely reconciled to God the Father. This is a wonderful truth. But here's the other side of it we don't hear so often. All creation is going to be reconciled to him. There will be peace amongst all all creation. And you're like, okay, hold on one second. I know that people who reject Jesus, who aren't saved, aren't going to be reconciled to him like we are. What's this verse saying? Is it some sort of universalism whereby everybody's saved, whatever they do? No, 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 no. What it's saying in the context is, there is all of creation for him. Satan was created before he fell for the glory of God. That's a tough one to get your head around. We tried last week. We won't do it again this week. Everything was created for the glory of God. And through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, everything in the universe is going to be sorted out, wrapped up, put together and finished. And we'll look at the finished work and we'll go, I get it. Glory be to you, God. You sorted everything out. And the hard thing for us to get our heads around in all of this is that for us, that reconciliation is the removal of our sin, the conquering of death, and the restoring of our relationship with God. But the reconciling and the making peace in the universe as a whole will often be to do with destruction as much as it is to do with restoration. That ultimately everything will be dealt with. Let's look at the life of Satan as an example. Satan was created not as a mere common angel, but as the, 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 probably a cherubim, the greatest of angelic beings. And it wasn't enough, he wanted more, and he fell because of his pride, wanted to be like God. And, and I could t 
turn to passages and teach you all this stuff, but that's not my point. My point is, we have Satan, the great accuser, and we now in history have him as the enemy of God, seeking to thwart the work of God and hurt the people of God. And yet, somehow, God, in his wisdom, created him, knowing that he would fall and knowing that this would happen. And when everything is wrapped up at the end of history, God will be glorified through that creation. And everything is going to be resolved when he is taken and thrown into the lake of fire for all eternity. There is no making things right with Satan. There is no Satan standing before God and everything being dealt with. The conclusion, the reconciling, the making peace in the universe will come about through that created being being punished for all eternity. And this is where we've got to take a step back. Because for us it's always so personal. God is going to take every single person that he's ever created and those people will glorify him. Some through reconciliation that leads to restoration and some through reconciliation that leads to destruction. That's tough teaching. I would apologize for it, but it's in the Bible, so I'm, I'm stuck. But that's the truth. That everything will come to an end and everything in the universe will be reconciled, made peace, made right, and we will look at it and we will say, God, you were right, you were sovereign, you did it perfectly, and, and I, I bow before you. And I say that as someone who's had friends and relatives die apart from Christ. It's hard. It's a hard, hard doctrine. The main reason it's a hard doctrine is because we're so focused on ourselves. And we think, well, that's not fair, and this isn't fair. And guys, who are we? I mean, who are we? I was born in, a, in, in you know, 1972, for what it's worth. Almost 2,000 years after Christ. There were people being born for a few thousand years before Christ as well. I'm just one of billions of people that God's created. And I measure my life by days and weeks and months and years. And that time itself was created by Jesus Christ, who existed before there was time who created the physics of the universe so that there could be time, who created everything that ever was and ever will be and holds it all together. And in a moment, just in a moment of history, he who created history, in a moment in time, he who created time, put aside all of his glory, all of his majesty, and came to dwell in the womb of a virgin woman that he might come, be born, and grow so that we might see who God is. That he might conquer sin, and he might conquer death, and he might say to the whole of creation, from the beginning of time to the end of it, 
to every bug, to every creature, to, to every angelic being, good or bad, to the whole of creation and the whole of time, is going to say, look how glorious God is. And here we are saying, what about me? Do you see how ludicrous that is? Who are we? Who am I? Who am I? Just one person born at one moment in time. Just one aspect of God's creation. And yet, and yet, he took me. He planned me before the foundation of the universe. And he took me and he said, I'm having this one. And his son died for my sins. He took my sins. He was punished for my sins. That he might have me, give me his spirit, and use me for his glory. So that there I am in all of creation, and I get to be that tiny part of creation called his bride, the church. Who am I to have such a privilege? When we look at him reconciling the universe with restoration of some and destruction of others, we, don't, we shouldn't use that as an excuse to thumb our noses at God and disagree with God and how could you, God? That's the moment where we bow before him and say, the mercy and grace of a sovereign God majestic over all of time and creation to choose one such as I to give me his Holy Spirit that he might use me as part of his plan as part of the shining of his glory oh. <laughs> we're just not worthy Let's bow before him in our hearts. Let's pray and let's give him thanks now. <sighs> Father, we come before your text and we're humbled. We come before your son and we're humbled. He who created everything, everything created for him. And yet our tiny, tiny piece in this whole tapestry of the glory of God is for you to take us as sinners, to take the punishment for our sin upon yourself. to give us the righteousness of your Son. To take away what we deserved and to give us what we don't deserve so that we might see your character, your goodness, your long-suffering, your patience, your grace, your mercy, and we might worship you. God forbid that we would see this stuff today and not worship you. Father, thank you. Thank you for saving us. Lord, we pray that you would save others through us. 
And we pray that our lives would be lives that would bring glory to you. Amen.